On today's pod, Marina and Valeria are back, and they are interviewing Anna Sofia Barros, a physicist, equity and diversity strategist, and public speaker. They discuss their experiences as women in STEM, the economic and historic barriers to higher education, shifting the responsibility of advocacy, and the importance of fostering inclusive environments. So please lean in and enjoy this conversation on women in STEM and intersectionality. Welcome back to our podcast, and we're going to be having another discussion about the role of women in STEM today with my co-host, Valeria. My name is Marina, and today we have on Anna Sophia Barrows. Hello, everyone. My name is Anna Sophia. Uh, not Anna, not Sophia. Anna Sophia. I make the joke that it's, it has an imaginary hyphen between Anna and Sophia. Uh, <laughs> I am the um, currently the project coordinator, equity, diversity, and inclusion at the Rodman School of Management. Uh, I have an educational background in medical physics from Ryerson University and uh, leadership and inclusion. I am a Canadian certified inclusion professional, and I have a very, very strong passion towards advocating for inclusion in academia. That's lovely. Hey. And the way that uh, we found Anna Sophia is that I saw that you did a panel with SciExchange and then I checked out your page and saw that you were a big advocate of inclusivity and for women in STEM. And I thought this is perfect. So I just shot you a message and you were so receptive and open to the idea. And we're so happy to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, I was curious of how you found out about me, but no, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me here. Of course. Uh, So let's jump right in. First question, broad question, but how do you think being a woman has shaped your experience being in STEM or in the workplace? Has it made you aware of anything or has it impacted you personally? Yes, that's a very, I feel like that's a very heavy question, right? And I am going to share kind of my overall identity here. So I identify as a woman. I identify as a Mexican woman. Uh, my grandparents from my dad are actually indigenous, uh, so I do have indigenous roots. And yeah, I feel like in my STEM career, what shaped my career was not just being a woman, but being a Mexican woman. That intersection really made me be more perceptive of what was happening in STEM, right? Uh, when you are, so as, a, as someone who graduated with a physics degree, I started to realize that there was a very significant lack of inclusion in physics. Uh, if you start looking into, okay, if physics has this problem, what else is happening, right? And you start realizing that mathematics has a similar problem. Mm-hmm. Computer science has a similar problem. Then you start looking to like engineering has a similar problem. Um, chemistry, biology, And it was very saddening for me to see this, right? People were not, are not still fully accepting the idea that intersectional women can be a scientist, right? So I started like looking into it and I realized that it's not just the idea of women in science, it's the idea of underrepresented groups in science. What's going to happen if we have, um, a black woman in science, right? Is it going to be as accepted as a white woman in science? But the stereotypes and the biases that people have are still there. And I decided that I wanted to dedicate my career into kind of working 
and finding those and finding uh, actionable strategies to better it. So your experience with regards to how you saw lack of inclusion in science and the different barriers that people face actually uh, molded what you wanted your career to be? Uh, yes, I think it was my exp- my personal experience, my lived experience, together with the fact that I have always been very aware of my privilege. Uh, I moved here 10 years ago. I moved here to finish high school, uh, and my mom was in a shooting in her workplace back in Mexico, and we had to move here within like a two-week notice. Uh, and I kind of had never experienced racism or sexism as much before right I was still very young and not fully like understanding what the real world was like and coming to Canada it was the first time that I experienced racism and it was very eye-opening for me because I know that I can be very I I have a lot of white adjacent white adjacent uh, privilege so coming to Canada and experiencing racism for the first time was very disappointing because I realized that if me who can pass as someone who's white it's facing this racism, what's happening with people who are who identify as visible minorities, right? And then when I came into science and I realized that I was getting pushed away also for being a woman, I was just like, okay, like what's what's going on here, right? I never identified as a minority before. And now people are pushing me into this label. And mm-hmm. if that's happening to me, what's happening to other people who do identify, right? So I think it was that. It was that with knowing that I had certain privilege that I could use for better and to advocate for others as well. Yeah, I love that, actually. And I can uh, relate to that on a lot of levels. I'm from an immigrant family from Argentina. I do not look tan. I Because, again, uh, Argentina was super colonized. So we're pretty pale over there and have very Eurocentric features. But it's weird to me because I have a lot of family that is not white passing. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird to see the differences in how they're treated. Like one small example is that when my abuelo, he's pasty whites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and he married my abuela, who is much more tan. They were telling me how his family was kind of giving him a little bit of shit for marrying a woman so dark. And it's just, it's disgusting, but I, I get what you mean of seeing these things in your community and recognizing that you have these privileges because of whether it be your sex or your physical appearance and wanting to try to use those privileges to the advantage of those communities. Because if, even me just as a white woman is experiencing these things. What What's happening to, to women who are even more marginalized than I am? Absolutely. I feel like when we talk about inclusion and inclusion of women or uh, people who are misrepresented, we start seeing, we tend to see it as an us versus them, right? Mm-hmm. We identify a certain way and people identify in a different way. So it's, just different perspectives, right? But some of us actually have that, what I call a privilege to be able to link both of them, right? So a lot of the work that we do is making sure that people understand their privilege because just being able to listen to this podcast, for example, is a huge privilege. 
being able to go to school is a big privilege, right? Being、mm. able to、uh, get food and like, I see privilege as everything I'm grateful for, and、mm. understand that what things I'm grateful for, not other people have. So how do、mm. we ensure that people have what they need in order to succeed? Yeah, and it also comes down to economics and how economically certain minorities have been systematically disadvantaged, and then、yeah. that. Is one of the barriers for access to higher education or access to science, and the same thing that kind of happened with women, with how they were for so many years not allowed to participate in science or to be represented within it. The same thing is still happening with other、yeah. minorities. Indeed, and、uh, another thing that is super important to address is that when we say women and. Other people who are like other underrepresented folks is not that it's women and then the rest of the people are just underrepresented folks. Is that women have can have inter? It's it's this idea of intersectionality, right? Intersectionality is the way that we experience oppression and how our different identities can add up in the way that we experience oppression. For example, I identify as a woman and I identify as Mexican, right? But someone who identifies as a woman and Mexican、uh, with 100% indigenous heritage and probably has a disability experiences oppression significantly more than I would. So when we talk about women versus marginalized folks, we have to understand that women there's also different privilege between women, right?、Mm-hmm. Right now we talk about like yeah, let's bring like. A higher percentage of women, yeah. But if you're going to be bringing fifty percent of, like, let's say that like computer science wants to hire like fifty percent of like women, if you're just putting a target like that, very likely is that you're going to give that advantage to people who are already in a higher privilege point, right? So how do we make sure that we are able to approach indigenous women, black women, women with disabilities? With different socioeconomical backgrounds, right? It's also、uh, and Valeria, you brought a very good point, which is that、uh, economics have a big effect on how we experience, right?、Uh, privilege. We are born with certain privilege, but money can also make our privilege be different. So this idea of money and the role that it has with privilege. It's super important because, for example, and there's data on this. The Canadian National Institute for the Blind has done some work showing how people who with blindness or persons with vision loss are statistically more prone to have a significant pay gap to be underemployed, right? And in order for, for example, a person with a disability, let's say blindness, to have an experience life. In a more inclusive way, they might need certain tools. So let's say, for example, smartphones. Smartphones are a great tool for folks with vision loss. But how much does a smartphone cost? A thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, and if like historically, those folks are getting paid significantly less than someone who's able-bodied, then that's just a barrier that exists right there, right? So when we talk about making science more inclusive, to bring more women into science, to bring more 
diverse women into science. We have to consider all of these things, right? There are many multiple layers. There's different barriers for different women. It's not like women are just one group, the entire idea of intersectionality in the sense that it's sort of a Venn diagram of different identities and where people fall within that Venn diagram will determine like how much more difficult it would be for them to access certain privileges and to access certain opportunities. And so we have to kind of keep that in mind as well when we're like going through this entire just exploration in general um, in terms of how that differs for different people. Yeah, and I brought it up in the first place because I saw it in my own family. The reason I'm able to go to university and access higher education and hopefully one day get my PhD is a result of three, four generations of hard work and labor. And I don't take that lightly. My parents and grandparents have worked so hard. That's why it really boils my blood when people say that immigrants are lazy because they're the most hardworking people that I know. The reason that I'm able to live in my parents' house, have a comfortable life is because of three generations of work. And it shouldn't take that much for somebody to have the privileges that I have. Yep, you put it right there. It shouldn't take that much, right? It's very unfortunate. And I really believe in part of like what the the things that I encourage more, uh, especially educational institutions is to understand that this is not something that we can just hope it gets better. This is not something that we're going to be able to fix just by hosting events and panels, right? This is something that requires strategic work. This is something like it requires a lot of work and it requires experts to work on this, right? It's, uh, it's important to, for organizations to start putting their, and I'm going to be a bit harsher here, they, they need to start putting their money where their mouth is, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I am very, very privileged right now to be working at the Rodman School of Management, and it's a global school at the University of Toronto. And one of the biggest things is that one of our values is diversity. And if we are going to value diversity, we need to make sure that we're respecting that diversity and that everyone at Rodman understands the importance of diversity. So I have been very privileged to have uh, the dean's office at the faculty are just fantastic and understand it and understand that we, this is not work that can be done by one person. This is not work that can be done only by the dean. This is work that requires multiple connections between the different departments at Rodman and also people who can be held accountable for it, right? So um, my boss, Professor Numan Ashraf, is just such a fantastic leader in that sense in understanding that our values need to be connected to our academic vision, but at the same time, we need to respect and understand diversity and also understand that not because you're diverse or not because you're a woman or not because you're insert whatever identity you have, it means that you are going to be inclusive. It takes education, not because I'm Mexican. It means that I'm going to understand all of Mexicans problems. Not because I'm Mexican, it means that I can represent all of diverse folks, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone needs training, everyone needs understanding, every, everyone needs this sort of education, and everyone needs to have a growth mindset and a learning mindset in order to understand that this is not a, I read a book and now I'm an expert. This requires daily work, and it will change throughout life. Yeah, I, I love the 
point that you brought up about having a growth mindset, because I think that the thing that people forget is that we're the only ones that have ever lived our own lives. What I mean by that is everybody else has gone through a different life path than you have. Their brain is going to develop differently. They're going to think differently. So you need to be able to understand that. And while you don't have to always agree with everybody, you need to be able to at least see where they're coming from. Indeed. Uh, I call it, it's kind of the the diversity duality. And mm-hmm. I believe that diversity is fluid in two different ways. One as individuals and the other as, as societies. Diversity is fluid as individuals because the way that we are born and the identities that were assigned at our birth, during our birth, are not always the identities that we're going to have throughout our lives, right? As we grow, our identities may change. We may end up identifying as a person with a disability in the future, right? We may, our, the gender assigned at birth might not be the gender that we identified with. So as people, we have to understand that diversity changes within ourselves and diversity changes as a society in the same way. COVID has been a very direct showcase of how that has worked, right? Mm-hmm. Such much change in one year. And the way that we see the issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion right now are very different than the way that we were seeing them last year. Last year, we were perhaps not as concerned about how to be inclusive in online environments. Last year, we were perhaps not as concerned about how to make social media accessible. Last year, we were perhaps not concerned about how do you make sure that you keep students engaged if students are in different time zones. So the way that we learn about diversity changes throughout time. And we have to understand that as we learn, we will just always continue to learn. So the same way that it works with science, where we're always going to have scientific research and scientific, different scientific results, it works for diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Because as humans, there's quite literally no possible way that we could know everything or have a full perspective. It's just not possible. So you need to be able to reach out and learn from other people. Exactly. I know that you have clearly had experiences yourself that have um, led to your career choice. And in that sense, I'm wondering, in term- and, and I would extend this question from women to just any sort of like minority group in general, but how do you make an effort to lift up other women in your life? The best way to do that in your experience. Mm-hmm. And also in a practical manner as well because we live practically, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really believe that this comes to a very, very easy way of doing, there's very easy ways of doing this. Um, the first one is, and right now it has become, in, become kind of a trending word, how do we become better allies? Allies for each other, allies for other folks, right? And I think that before I even like start talking about allyship, I think it's important for us to understand that allyship is not a self, self-imposed title. It's not a self-assigned title. I don't choose to identify myself as an ally because I may be a good ally in certain situations and not a great ally in others. It's impossible for me to be 100% always an ally because I do not know 
the experiences of everyone else around me. So other people identify us as allies. We can do the work towards trying to be a good ally, but other people who receive and understand the work that we're doing are the ones who can identify us as allies. So I would say that the first thing that we do in order to lift each other or help each other or to be better allies, it's, as I mentioned before, check our privilege. It's super, super important for us to understand that our privilege plays a big role on supporting each other and sharing that privilege. It's the first step for us to be able to be more empathetic. The way that I heard someone phrase this uh, concept once, I thought was very interesting is to be aware of how your body takes up space in a room. So when you walk into a room, your body takes up space in a way where you may not be perceiving it, but there is a communication to other people of privilege just based off of, you know, how you present yourself and that that unconsciously affects other people or consciously and that you have to be aware of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that what the point that you're bringing is, is really, really uh, strong. Uh, the way that we say it in our office, Professor Numan Ashraf says that one of the things that if you have privilege, you have to learn where to step in and where to step back. So if you're having a conversation, where are the points where your voice is actually valuable to be more inclusive? And where are the points where you're just taking up space, right? And that kind of brings me directly to my second point, which is uh, performative allyship. We need to be very, very mindful about performative allyship. And this goes not just for women, not just for like, this is everyone, right? And what I mean by performative allyship is when we try to be allies by just making it a performance. And it's very easy for our people to identify when this is the case, because this is when the end result is just for you. It's so easy for us. And with what happened this summer uh, in terms of Black Lives Matter, it's so easy for people to go and put a black square on their Instagram page. But what else? What else? So how do we make sure that this is not just about showing that we're inclusion, inclusive, but, but actually doing? And I think that this is a question that everyone needs to ask themselves. Is it by learning? Is it by advocating? Is it by being a better bystander, what are the things that you can do? It's not just about social media. And it's not about just pointing fingers. It's about actually trying to facilitate these conversations in a way that will make some impact. And then my third point would be, as I mentioned before, uh, how can we be better bystanders, right? And I think that that's one of the easiest ways that we can all learn to be more inclusive and to be better bystanders I usually tell people, and this is, I did not come up with this, uh, but it's the, using the three Ds. So when you're responding as a bystander, you can be direct, you can distract, or you can delegate. So I'm gonna give you an example. Uh, in my first job, I think it was my first full-time job, graduating from my undergrad, I got hired and there was, a situation where a manager in the office that I worked at required to move some stuff from one building to another. And my direct supervisor was there as well. When, my ma when that manager asked me if I could move the stuff from one room to the other, she said, 
I said like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And her response was like, ha ha ha. So are you going to be my Mexican mule? That's not even... I'm so, I'm so sorry. That, oh, that's no, no, not no. even one of the implicit ones, though. That's just straight oh, up. That's just an aggression, right? Gross. And she yeah. said it as a joke. And it was, excuse my language, it was a stupid joke. I blame her, yes, because that was a racist comment to make. But I blame my manager even more because he was there. And his response was, are you going to let her call you that? So... Imagine any person in their early 20s having to deal with that. People deal with oppression on a regular basis. And then a superior makes a comment like that, right? So I... As if you're responsible for it. Right? So part of me... Make it your problem. mm -hmm. So part of me wishes that I had been better at that moment and I had had more support and I had like known how to handle the problem. I was nervous and I just laughed and walked and helped the person regardless right what is the support that I would have wanted someone to give to me right so I think of it like okay let's say my manager that situation happened if my manager felt comfortable and this was like a peer-to-peer situation my manager could have told that other manager hey like that's not a good comment like what did you mean by that and make her unpack her thoughts at the moment or be like that's disrespectful you should not be saying that right Now, let's say that he did not feel comfortable being direct on the spot. He could have done the second D. He could have distract. Uh, Maybe change the conversation and later on have a conversation with me and acknowledge the fact that I, that he experienced that, that he saw that what happened, the aggression, and connect with me and ask me what support looked like to me. What it is that you want me to do? How can I be a better manager? How can I be of support to you, right? And the third thing would be if he just did not know how to deal with it at all, he could have delegated. There are offices of equity, diversity, and inclusion in pretty much every institution nowadays. There are people who are experts in the field pretty much everywhere nowadays. There's always HR department. There's always someone who can help you navigate a problem in this sort of situations. So if you do not feel comfortable or do not even know how to address a problem, you can just delegate, right? But it's important to do something about it and not just let it happen. So then, and I'm gonna quote here, uh, Farah Khan, who's from Ryerson University, actually. She, she's from the Consent Comes First office. And she uses the, the BRAVE framework, which says that whenever someone has a, a situation and needs support, we need to B, begin by listening, R, respect confidentiality, And this one comes very, um, it's very important for us to understand how much, if someone's trusting you with something, how important it is for us to not break that trust, because that can be very, very damaging, especially for folks who have experienced oppression as a constant, as a regular thing that happens in their lives. And that will add to the feeling that they don't have a support network and that they cannot just the feeling of having broken trust alienates you even more in a sense. Exactly. Another example in terms of respecting confidentiality is, and I think it goes really well today. So we're recording this on Wednesday, October 21st. So today's international pronouns day. 
um, when someone comes out to you, it doesn't mean that they have done to everyone else. So if someone comes out to you, it's important for you to understand that that's very important information that you're getting and that that person's trusting you. So you cannot just go and share it around through all your channels, right? So understanding confidentiality and respecting that, it's super important. The third one would be A, or the brave A. Uh, you should ask what support looks like to them. So not everyone wants to be treated the same way. Some people will come with a situation to you and they may not want you to solve the problem. They may just want to talk about it. Or someone would, would may actually want you to use your privilege to advocate for them. But it is not on us to decide that. We do not get to be the saviors in the situation. We get to ask what it is that they would want us that role to be. The, the fourth letter would be V, validate them. And as Marina mentioned earlier, people who experience oppression have very likely been going through this over and over and over. And we don't want this to turn into a stereotype threat, right? Living under the fear that you're being seen under the stereotype lens. We don't want this to foster as part of their imposter syndrome. We want them to feel validated and to understand that their concerns are real. And the last letter is E. We need to empathize. And empathize does not mean, oh, I'm so sorry for you. It means I may not know exactly what you're going through, but I will be here to support you in whatever way makes most sense for you. Yeah, it's not pity. It's more a sense of you're trying to understand how the other person is feeling. Exactly. And to finish that question, uh, I think that that's the way that I try to support people and lift others, to mm -hmm. be there the way that they would want me to be there. Yeah, and I think that what you say also applies a lot to, let's say, sexual harassment in the workplace. I know I've experienced it. Uh, I used to be a bartender and- Oh, me too. <laughs> and you know how it is with the men that come to your bar. Uh, it's, it's just weird. It's weird, man. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. so I feel like those same kind of principles that apply to, let's say women in STEM or just women in general can also apply. Oh, oh for sure. And you brought up a very, very important point, right? Which is, and I think that this is just a, such a sad point when, if you work in the service industry, very likely is that you have experience, uh, the effects, the negative effects of the patriarchy and being objectified and uh, having to experience harassment as a constant, right? And how sad is it that someone who has to like work in order to be able to afford their living then decides to go into a scientific career and experiences the same thing? That's just mind blowing and we need to do better right? And we need to challenge those things. And I feel like if you have privilege, be a better bystander. And if you have great privilege and willing to learn, honestly, hire people who know better about equity, diversity, and inclusion and have them implement strategy, right? I think it's super important. Mm -hmm. I really like the uh, strategies that you put forward, especially, you know, it's always nice to have little acronyms too to help you remember things. Um, but I like the focus, especially on the fact that um, to not assume what people need or want from you, 
but rather to be just generally speaking, very open, communicative and listen, because there is just as much of a danger of overstepping or taking up too much space or, you know, and that can have equally negative effects if you act in a way that makes the other person believe that they cannot do things on their own. So I think that that's a really good point to find that balance. Just ask. It's a normal human like life skill that you should have in most situations, regardless, right? No, I absolutely agree. And I think that another thing that is super important is if you ask and you get a response that is not what you want, learn to own it. Also, if you ask and your the response that you get is actually for you to take action on something that if, if it is for you to use your privilege for better, learn to own it as well, right? We cannot just ask and then people tell you like, well, this is what's happening. This is what I hope like changes. And then people are like, oh, well, that's too bad. Um, yeah, that's just how the system works, right? No, how it is that we can take action on this, right? Mm -hmm. We cannot just like, and I'm going to quote Dr. Jeremy Kerr. He uh, was a panelist in one of the um, symposiums I helped coordinate for the Canadian Science Policy Conference a few years ago. And we were talking about the things for this Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Symposium. And he said, I'm just tired of hearing people just give ideas and not do anything about it, right? It's not like we're like, it's not about throwing noodles into the wall and hoping they stick. <laughs> and that's how I feel a lot of people are doing equity, diversity, and inclusion work right now. She's like, no, we need to do better. And what feeds into that is something that you mentioned before, uh, performative allyship, which I feel like you see a lot of, um, apart from just people on social media and in general life, but also corporations using that oh. as a way to sort of make money or boost their standing in some way. And it's just really frustrating because it dilutes the work that people are actually doing. And it's- They're basically capitalizing on it. Exactly. And it really creates this massive like inefficiency in, in that sense, like you were talking about throwing ideas at the wall. And then if you have all of these people making all of this noise, but most of them are not actually willing to do anything or they're not actually thinking and listening, then it's just a whole bunch of noise and the real work that's being done is clouded by it. Indeed, indeed. Or it makes it seem like people are doing work and not, right? Uh, I think yeah. like what you brought out, the point that like a lot of people do it for, for the money, right? There's, there's research that shows like there's a business case for diversity and inclusion. If you're more diverse, you're gonna like probably like your business will do better. But there's also the part of like performative allyship has a big role in making us feel better. If I post about this, it's going to make me feel better. If I point a finger at how this other person is not doing equity, diversity, inclusion right, it's going to make me feel like I'm a better person, right? And it's not about that. Assuading some, some sort of guilt about your privilege, right? When that's not the point of recognizing your privilege. Is, the point of that is not to sort of feel guilty about it and then try to make yourself feel better. The point of it is in order to be a better person for other people by recognizing how you impact other people. Mm -hmm. exactly. And I think a, a big thing is also just education. Education is a really big thing because if people aren't even aware that things are happening, then 
how do you expect them to care? You know? Uh, that's an absolutely like great one. And if I can like, like share a few like titles, if people are like bored right now during this pandemic and want to learn more about it, I would encourage people to and, like, especially if you're in Canada, you want to read books such as Inferior by Angela Saini, which talks about how women has have been significantly underrepresented in science all the way to like Darwin, right? Like it has been, this has a long, like we have a very historical problem here in terms of uh, representation of women in science. If you wanna learn more about how to be an anti-racist, I would ask people to read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Abraham X. Candy. If you want to learn more about white fragility, read White Fragility by Rob, Robin DiAngelo. Uh, also, if you're in Canada, I would encourage people to read uh, 20 things, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. That book is just fantastic because I really believe that right now many people are getting on board with acknowledging the land in Canada. And I think it's super important for us to acknowledge the land. Uh, me as a settler who like moved here from Mexico, I have to understand how my privilege has come at the expense of other folks who were here first and who were totally take like their land was taken away from them and that's and we still do not honor that and we still do not understand that and right now indigenous peoples have been significantly underrepresented in education in industry in everywhere right so i think that if we're going to be like sharing the land acknowledgement in canada we need to understand what it is that we do it, what does it mean to you, and understand how is it that us are going to try to enable the recommendations that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? What is our <laughs> role in order to make science more accessible to Indigenous women, to yeah. all Indigenous peoples, right? Again, put your money where your mouth is. There you go. Because in today's in today's society, that's just how the world runs. So, and that's what I'm, brings a lot of power. So if you're not putting your money where your mouth is, then it it feels like empty words. But again, we're just undergraduate students. So we're trying to, with a lot of the student groups that there are in terms of equity, like I'm a part of one as the VP of LGBT, but we don't really have much funding. So it's kind of hard to put your money where your mouth is. So I've just focused on creating spaces. But when the people in power are always preaching things about diversity or when a company changes its logo to the pride flag for June and then July 1st, it's gone. What, what's the point? <laughs> Because I, I do see value in education and in raising awareness. But if everybody's aware of it and then just shrugs and goes, huh, that's too bad. Yep. What's the point? Yep. I totally agree. I, I graduated from Ryerson University. I actually created the Ryerson Science Society. I was the first president of the Ryerson Science Society. Uh, but anyway... Uh, I think oh, it's super. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, yeah, there you go. You see, but yeah, that's my legacy. The Rise and Science Society still exists, and that's all I care about. Um, but yeah, I think it's important that students understand how much leverage they have. 
students have the power to hold administration accountable. Students have the power to hold faculty accountable. Mm -hmm. Educational systems are not just about faculty. Educational systems are not just about administration. Students are the next scientists. Students are going to be the faculty of the future. Students, how are we hoping to get to hire more Black faculty or more Indigenous faculty if we are pushing away our students right now, right? We need to foster and make sure they get through the whole process so that in 10 years from now, we have more diverse faculties, right? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, in terms of your experiences, and, you know, since you are somewhat older than us, we are still very young. I would like to hear about whether you've seen any positive changes or anything that makes you optimistic about things changing moving forward? Yes and no. I have seen positive change, specifically in science, I want to assume that that's what you're asking. When I was, uh, when I was at Ryerson, there, the talks about equity, diversity, and inclusion at first started with the founding dean of science, Dr. Imogen Co. And she moved the conversation from just Ryerson to a national conversation that we needed to change. She brought this idea of this program called Athena Swan from the UK to Canada. That program, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, is called Dimensions EDI here in Canada. It took about five years for the federal government to give, I think, I want to say it was 15 or $25 million towards this program to exist. And this program, what it does is uh, it fosters research institutions to implement better diversity and inclusion strategy, and it awards them for it. So Ryerson's running currently the, the pilot project on this. The Canada research chairs are now asking their faculty who are getting chairs to make sure that they have a diversity and inclusion strategy as well. We have NSERC is now asking people to have a diversity and inclusion strategy in their applications. And that's great, but not at the same time because people are not educated enough to implement yet. How Hmm. do you expect faculty from a department to write diversity inclusion strategy if that faculty does not have the resources to implement equity, diversity and inclusion strategy, right? I don't know if the faculty of of Ryerson has uh, an an office of equity, diversity and inclusion, but like here at Rodman, we are very privileged to have an entire office. It's a small office, but (laughs) we have an office where we are able to support our faculty and students and work closely with human resources to support our staff because this is not something that not all academics are trained on how to do equity, diversity, and inclusion. The same way that I was not trained on how to do brain surgery or cardiac surgery, right? You need experts. This is not just about reading a book. This is about ongoing work. So in terms of scene change, yeah, I see checkmark change. But is that actually going to make a change long run, where are your sustainable strategies, right? Where are your systemic strategies to make sure that this work Mm -hmm. is not just work that gets lost when a new dean comes, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or when a new president comes. Those are the things that 
they need to give priority to these issues. And yeah, it's like strategic priority and you have to invest in it. And it's going to be a long run investment. It's not just a one year project. This is a perpetual project. The same way that we have chairs of departments, we need to have diversity inclusion specialists on board at all times so that we can have these conversations on an ongoing basis with everyone in the scientific community. So we've talked about strategies for being a good ally. And I'm wondering in terms of personally, how you can make yourself be heard without the help of other people? Um, How can you create a platform where people are more likely to listen to you or to take you seriously? Uh, Just because I feel like that's a struggle in general with regards to this whole issue, right, is that we listen to people differently and that we, that is also part of privilege and the space people take up in a room is how people will listen to them and how people will perceive them will differ based off of how they present themselves, right? Yeah, and it could be as simple as just always being talked over or not having your opinion taken seriously simply because of the way you may look or because of your gender, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, women in STEM, right? Oh, that's a very challenging question. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this comes from, I think that this will be a call for the people with more privilege, the people who are in the position to advocate, right? I think that it's, it's really sad right now that when we have this sort of conversations, we try to give people who are misrepresented or people who experience oppression the tools for them to advocate for themselves. And we need to start working more on how it is that we can enable a place where they can just talk and not have to advocate for themselves, right? Where Mm -hmm. behavior like people talking over you is not accepted. True, the fact that we have to ask this question. Right? (laughs) Well, It shows the problem in itself, yeah. And Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be very, very honest with you, right? And I'm so happy because this has been like one of the first actual conversations that I have had in terms of uh, women in science that does not talk about like, just tell me about your story and how can we like do this together. We need to hold people accountable. And I really believe that it's our responsibility as, and I say our talking administration and faculty like in universities, it is our responsibility to enable these spaces we should not be putting this on students. We should not be putting this on researchers. We should enable a culture of inclusion as part of our like everyday. That's how it should be and that's it. It should not be on students who are already having to juggle so many things and just like getting through an undergrad, getting through a master's, getting through a PhD is hard enough. And unfortunately many times underpaid And on top of that, you have to advocate for yourself. No, we should be better. So Mm -hmm. yeah, my response is try to find a person who is able to be a good ally for you. A person 
who you can trust. This can be a professor, this can be staff, this can be someone who's willing to sponsor you and who you're able to share and talk about these issues. Our office at Rodman tries to work on that with students. We try to walk people through what it's like to be inclusive, right? If people have issues, we can help them understand where these issues are coming from. So I think it's important for students, if it's possible to try to find that person, I just find it so unfortunate that, yeah, like you said, like we have to advocate for ourselves, but not every time it's possible, right? And unfortunately it sucks, but in the world, if you advocate for yourself, sometimes it's still poorly perceived and it can sometimes affect your like job opportunities or your mm. experience in a lab or anything, stuff like that. And that's yeah. so problematic. Yeah. So what I would say is try to get... I, I believe that equity, diversity, and inclusion work needs to come as a sandwich. It comes from the top down and from the bottom up. We need students to be a bit more of advocates and we need faculty and the decanals office and administrators to actually understand this, the values of inclusion and to implement this strategy. And that's how we will work through the system. Yeah, I, I think... I love the take that you had on the question because it's true that in asking this question, it's almost like putting the responsibility for advocating and for making our voices heard just on ourselves instead mm -hmm. of on the institutions that we're a part of, right? Yeah. I think the reason I even asked it in the first place is because right now the reality is that we're not there yet. And I hope that one day we won't have to ask this question. I think that realizing that sometimes we may have to be in these positions where we do have to advocate for ourselves and knowing how to do that is really valuable to the people in those situations. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we're restructuring things so that this doesn't even have to be a thing in the first place. Right. Uh, Marina, I think you wanted to say something. And so I think that kind of the takeaway is to look at how we we are constantly creating these environments on a daily basis in just casual conversations in the classroom setting in every way sort of looking at how our actions and behaviors whether that's talking over somebody whether that's you know any sort of judgments that you might make on a person we all looked inward and we're very like on top of ourselves in terms of how we treat other people that we wouldn't have to act differently so that other people would treat us differently you know mm -hmm. and it's again we talked about this in the last podcast we did on women in stem of the fear of people perceiving you as being a bitch if you're a strongly worded woman and mm -hmm. how men wouldn't be typically called the same thing if they acted in the same manner that you had to in order to make yourself heard oh they're assertive right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's and that's it's so unfortunate right so my boss and i'm gonna share numan ashraf's sayings and i'm probably quoting him wrong here but he says that the culture that we walk by is the culture that we enable so and i think that's super important because mm -hmm. what i try to teach people is to start fostering a culture where bystanders are more active. 
where it is more okay if you are not in danger to share your thoughts to do so, right? We very often stay quiet when situations happen. If you are in a position where you can advocate for yourself and are not in fear for it, do so. We need to start fostering this. Like sometimes we have to be bystanders for ourselves, right? But we need to start, and I'm not saying calling out everything and being like, oh, let's point fingers at everything. But I am saying, yes, there are certain behaviors that we should not be accepting, right? The other thing that it's uh, that my, my boss tells me is that all of us can delegate responsibility. We, what we cannot delegate, delegate is accountability. So it's on each of us to try to be, hold ourselves accountable for this work, right? I do believe that there may be strategies for us to advocate for ourselves, but we should also try to work on advocating for others in a way that makes sense and try to hold ourselves accountable. Because if we start making this a normal, maybe we can start moving up that message and maybe faculty start taking this as well. Maybe, I don't know, government starts taking on this. Like maybe like this just becomes the norm to be there for each other in a way where we are respecting each other. Mm -hmm. I find that, yeah, I find that very, powerful that idea that you know the culture that you walk by is a culture you enable because it is this whole idea of a bystander is that inaction is a type of action in itself and it is a choice and it I mean obviously it depends on the situation that you're in but especially as an ally that is a position where you have the ability to not just let things sort of pass by and maintain the status quo right um and social pressure really does affect the way that people behave so it is it is an effective means to enact change at least on some local level right yeah in a way that i like also like because uh, a lot of the conversations that sometimes come is like call out culture right a way that can be perceived a bit better is the unpacking culture. If someone is being disrespectful, if someone makes a disrespectful remark, acknowledge it and ask questions. It's important for that person. Many times people who make comments are just not educated in these issues and unpacking those problems. For example, someone says, oh, that's okay. You can ask them like, oh, I'm sorry, but what do you mean by that? Because what you may be meaning by that is not what I understand. And that may not be the right expression you wanted to use. And then ask, make people unpack their own prejudice, their own stereotypes, their own biases, because that can also be a learning opportunity for them. It gives them the opportunity to reflect on where they're going wrong and how they are affecting other people because they may not I mean it is true that people may not be aware of how they affect other people and the way to create that change is to have people reflect on it and internally have a change of of how they perceive things so that they behave like differently in the future yeah it's uh 
I'm going to tell you right now, you're probably not going to get everyone responding positively to it. But you, if you get 50% of them, that's a great win, right? Right now, we, I think we're at a great advantage where being woke is becoming a cool thing. So I'm just like, well, if that's how we have to like start educating people, let's take advantage of that and educate people. Yeah. I was wondering on to sort of like wrap up the podcast, if you would like to share with us any female role models in STEM that you look up to specifically, because I find that sort of looking at people as role models is really empowering, especially if you have, if we have, like we do in this society, a history and the current system set up where, you know, it can be pretty discouraging to look at, but seeing people who are leading the way can just be empowering to see examples of people who are not allowing the status quo to sort of continue. I don't know. Yeah. They're breaking it, you know, themselves with their own lives, right? Yeah, we're challenging these barriers and these biases. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm going to share some of the ones that I encountered while being at Ryerson University. I think the number one would be founding dean, Dr. Imogen Ko. She, I think that one of the great things that she had is that she was very aware of her white privilege, her white British privilege, and used that to advocate. She was not just a mentor, but a sponsor for me. And I think that that's another huge thing that scientists, especially if you're in a position of power, you need to move from just mentoring people to actually sponsoring them. Mentoring is usually not enough. You need to actually help them get ahead in their careers. So I think that that was one of the number one things I got from her. She just got it. And that was so great. It helped me so much. It helped me learn and make mistakes and understand. Another scientist from Ryerson as well that I really admire is Dr. Emily Agar, who runs SciExchange at Ryerson University. We're doing a podcast with her in December. (laughs) Actually, it's already scheduled. Yeah. We just have her for immunology this semester, and me and Valeria, mess- Valeria messaged me, and she's like, "We have to, we have to talk to uh, Doctor Guard. She's so cool. <laughs> she's so inspiring. So I totally get what you mean." Oh, she's just fantastic. Like she gets it. I had the pleasure of working with her in bringing soapbox science to Canada. It was Doctor Imogen Co, Doctor Emily Agar, uh, Lee Paulseth, and myself. Uh, who brought this in soapbox science is an opportunity where women scientists, people who identify as women scientists, bring soapboxes, like boxes, to the streets and talk about their research. Uh, So we did it at uh, Young and Dundas, and then we did it again at the Harborfront Center a couple of times, and we were the first ones in North America. Because I really believe that even those simple things can start breaking those stereotypes. So yeah, she's great, and ask her more about it. Yeah, I think, Marina, I think we're helping out with that later in November, too. <laughs> uh, you agreed Amazing. to be a host for that. Uh, and so did I. So, yeah. There you go. Cool. You're going to learn about amazing scientists there. Because, like, I have made so many great connections. Uh, I have, uh, there's scientists, like, for example, Dr. Rachel uh, Ward-Maxwell. She is the programmer and researcher for astrology, astrology, astronomy, astronomy, 
oh my god, I'm being terrible here. What a bad scientist. One of the two. <laughs> one of the two. It's fine. Doesn't really matter. Space <laughs> science. Something space. Yeah. Something with space. Astrology space is not the science one, but it's not the science, right? Yeah. We're not gonna. We're not gonna nitpick. Okay, it's okay. I'm just We're like, this is my English as a second language. Like, I blame it on that. Although in Spanish, it's the same difference. Everyone um, I know mixes up astrology and astronomy. I think they just sound very similar, to be honest. <laughs> there, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, she's like such a great advocate for um, women and diversity in science. And she's just like such a fantastic space scientist who also cares about science communication, which is super important. Yep. Dr. Samantha Yamin, Science Sam. She's a good friend and she's just fantastic as well. So yeah, there's and I feel like there's so many amazing local scientists um, who really like get it. Oh, another friend of mine, Dr. Uh, Sara Masuri. I may be mispronouncing her last name. She's also a space scientist and she just got and she's also at Ryerson, actually. She just got a page in the book Good Night Rebels, which is like a storybook on amazing women. And she just got like a page. It's like a child's book. And like, it was fantastic. So yeah, there's so many local scientists who you can connect with, ask to like have coffee with them. And now that we're online, like it's even better. But yeah, I look up to all of them. They're fantastic. That's awesome. Thank you for uh, introducing us to these people through the podcast, because I would love to reach out to some of them and get to know more about them as well. Before we end things off, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think my ad would say that it is okay to make mistakes. We're not all going to get it right the first time, but we need to start somewhere. So if you have to ask questions, ask questions. I honestly, I like give myself available. If you want to tweet at me, uh, email me. If you find my website, you can like send me an email. You can like... DM slide into my DMs. Uh, but <laughs> that's what I did. Now you're here. So <laughs> that's exactly what you did, actually. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Um, so yeah, like, yeah, I respond. There's people who will be able to help you and walk you through like, things and you don't have to be an expert. Because we're not expecting that people just become equity, diversity, inclusion experts. We're just carrying, we're just hoping that people want to learn more about it and want mm-hmm. to learn strategies to implement it. I definitely think that, you know, for everybody, it's, it's a learning process, a lifelong learning process, like you were talking about before, and that this is not something that you just read a book about one day. This is something you continually keep your ears open about and ask questions about and stay aware of on a daily basis as you go throughout your life and your interactions with other people. So I really want to thank you for coming onto this podcast and talking to us. It was uh, very inspiring to talk to someone who's further along in their career and to get your perspective on things. Yeah, I feel like this was very educational for me, at least. <laughs> like, I don't know about you, Marina, but I, I feel like I learned a lot. And uh, yeah, it was just a really valuable conversation. I really liked it. And thank you for coming on to here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. It was a fantastic use of my time. I was just so delighted to talk to both of you. And yeah, absolutely. Please stay in touch. All right. Uh, I think we'll end things here. But again, thank you so much for coming on and talk to you soon, hopefully. Absolutely. All right. Goodbye. You too. Bye-bye.